Benefits of Healthy Ecosystems. This is Katie Morikawa. What is the value of an intact ecosystem? Why should somebody who is struggling to make ends meet in their land management change what they're doing? When will they reap the rewards and in what ways? Or what do they risk losing if they don't begin to pivot to more ecologically sound practices? This is the second post from my Appalachian Biodiversity series based on a presentation I gave. The first post, episode 36, entitled Appalachian Biodiversity gives more of a broad overview and uh, there will be more posts coming uh, with the rest of the content from that presentation. The economic or concrete value of nature is a question that ecologists don't address as often as they probably should, and that, though good efforts have been made in recent decades, has never been fully quantified from what I can tell. That is to say, we hear stories about how bad it is that we're cutting down the rainforests or filling the oceans with plastic waste, but what exactly will be the costs? If we lose biodiversity, but humans can still survive the radically altered world we're creating, what will it cost us? Nature lovers like myself tend to fall back on the passionate and reflexive reasons that move us. Because it's beautiful, because it feels right, because we love it. (laughs) But the steely-eyed, pragmatic value of nature is a question that needs to be answered too especially when you're asking your friends and family to change how they're managing their land, or when you're asking government to allocate funds. Clear, coherent, and practical reasons help a lot when you're making that ask. Furthermore, people in love with nature make great stewards, but their efforts can't prevent future generations from walking back protections made by those who came before as recent trends make clear. Former President Trump's scaling back of environmental protections reflect an attitude shared by many. He was playing to his base after all. As but one example, the wolf was removed from the endangered species list in impulsive fits and starts many times during the years after it was reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park and established a foothold. The return of the ecosystem's top predator had done an extraordinary job of quickly restoring Yellowstone's biodiversity. But that progress was shattered when it became legal again to kill wolves. Ranchers quickly seized the opportunity, killing pack leaders and sending the packs into chaos. The fragile harmony that observers and researchers were watching with hope has not recovered. So I hope that a clear and coherent set of well-founded arguments can help to make protections more enduring, though I hold no illusions that the truly selfish or short-sighted among us will be swayed. But if I can help that large part of the community who are largely uncommitted on the subject to step up on the side of nature when it counts, then my efforts will be worth it. As Enric Sala, who told the story of Yellowstone's wolves in his book, The Nature of Nature, asserts, we so often don't know the value of a thing until it's gone. 
especially when it comes to functional ecosystems. This is especially tricky when those losses happen slowly, as they do when you're working with something so vast and abundant as the North American continent. By the time a generation inherits a degraded ecosystem, those who lived while it still thrived are long dead, and even the memories of it have faded like a fantasy dream. Worse yet, our own modern culture is so dissociated from nature that many people never interact with it except to walk from the house to the car or maybe to jog through a neighborhood park. There are lots of people who live in the country or who like to spend time outdoors, but are either so terrified or so disgusted by bees and snakes and spiders that they'll kill first without ever considering that a garter snake, a carpenter bee, and a green garden spider pose absolutely no threat to them and are actually wonderful contributors to the environment. I've heard Joe Rogan go on at length about how, quote, horrible and, quote, vicious wolves are to justify killing them or to justify killing elk to prevent the elk's far worse death at the hands of wolves, which from the perspective of any ecologist or wildlife biologist is absolute drivel. Wolves are top predators and we would never want to get on the wrong side of a meal from them, nor should we make the mistake of trying to turn them into pets. But to place such a human value judgment on an animal fulfilling its evolutionary purpose is beyond ludicrous. And also, how can anyone with a spark of perception in their heart look into a wolf's eyes and fail to recognize something profoundly familiar? How can they be unmoved by its beauty? We should not romanticize the wolf, but it did give us humanity's best friend after all. Despite all these obstacles, I think it is important to try to lay out some practical arguments. As I continue to clash in small ways every day with traditional perspectives on land management, I appreciate more and more the arguments that can penetrate those worldviews. This is what I've found so far, pulling on many sources. It is a paltry and thin list by my estimation, but as I said, this work hasn't been done extensively and well, probably because we've never lived through a total ecosystem collapse and we've never experienced the joys of poison rain or toxic soil or an environment so devoid of beauty we would want to jump into the machine to escape the nightmare we've created outdoors. These benefits focus on Appalachia, but should apply to many ecosystems. And I, I had many sources, I didn't document them all. Um, I read extensively to try to come up with this list, but I went to the EPA, the US Forest Service, I read Enric Sala's book, he's from National Geographic. Um, I've read scientific papers, and I've got links in the blog post at katiemorikawa.com. Um, and, you know, I did document and take quotes and, doc, you know, source those. <laughs> and so all of those links are also in my blog post entitled Benefits of Healthy Ecosystems. So the first benefit is clean water. 
And, you know, it seems like, well, yeah, who, big deal, who cares about that? And most of us in Appalachia enjoy access to clean water. Um, but this is thanks in no small part to our extensive forested mountains, which both generate rain and capture and filter it across the region. In West Virginia, however, coal mining has depleted the water table in places causing wells to run dry, while chemical spills have polluted it in other places. It is a terrible irony that a place blessed with abundant rainfall has a water crisis that has left millions of people without access to clean drinking water. In Hawaii, population growth, reduced rainfall due to climate change, and invasive plant species growing up in the mountains in the watershed have caused water shortages in recent years. And this fact um, hits close to home because I lived there and they had the most amazing water that came straight out of the tap. And I would hike up in the watershed. It was a protected forest area. And I had no idea that most of those trees were invasive, non-native trees. Apparently, they are so um, water hungry that they are actually draining down the water table as well as the other issues. The next is clean air. And that's one of those kinds of things that you take completely for granted until you don't have it. The United Nations Economic Commission for Europe says, quote, trees and other vegetation absorb pollutants such as excessive nitrogen dioxide, ozone, and particulate matter through their leaves and needles and thereby help to improve air quality, unquote. And I think that the benefits can go far beyond uh, just cleaning pollution, but actually uh, filling the air with health-positive, life-giving, beneficial, like, organic compounds that you can breathe in. The Japanese National Health Program of Forest Bathing builds upon this concept, but anyone who has ever stood in an old-growth forest and taken a deep breath knows this is true. Again, we have our forests to thank. Mild weather. Many studies confirm that widespread deforestation reduces rainfall, raises surface temperatures, and produces greater fluctuations in temperature and weather. We have the large tree canopy of our forests to thank for our mild weather, together with mountain topography, weather patterns, and other climate factors. Given the role Appalachia has played in sheltering multitudes of species during ice age fluctuations over millions of years, we can expect this to endure if we preserve our forests and ecosystems. Health Benefits According to Enric Sala, author of The Nature of Nature, children growing up near protected areas were statistically taller than their peers. From forest bathing to nature retreats, people around the world are recognizing the many health benefits of nature. On the negative side, degraded ecosystems spawn diseases via stresses on wildlife and unhealthy human interactions. 
Um, It has been argued that HIV AIDS, COVID-19, and H1N1 are just some of the diseases that have come out of a degraded ecosystem and an unhealthy boundary and human interactions that are kind of yucky and nasty along that boundary. Um, So if we want to prevent the next pandemic, we need to protect and restore our ecosystems. Evidence shows that the prevalence of Lyme disease in the eastern U.S. can be traced directly to the extirpation of the wolf, this ecosystem's top predator and keystone species. And it's a little complex and I didn't like lodge it in my brain, but I've got a link. Um, Because it's not just that the loss of the wolf has meant the explosion of the deer population, um, which, you know, hosts the the tick that has Lyme. There's these other um, interactions with coyotes and foxes. Anyway, you can follow the link uh, from my blog post. (laughs) Mental health benefits as well are are many and widespread with... um, mature, healthy ecosystems. Although more study is needed, there are strong correlations between proximity to protected, mature ecosystems and reduced rates of anxiety, depression, insomnia, domestic violence, substance abuse, and other mental health problems. Vacationers to national parks can certainly attest to the relaxation and other mental health benefits they experience. Interestingly, in urban environments, there is these projects of re-greening or greening for the first time vacant city lots, and they have seen dramatic, measurable reductions in depression and domestic violence in the neighborhoods around these greened city lots. Um, So it's just an example of a move in the right direction along that same gradient. Recreation. In 2021, the U.S. National Park System generated $20.5 billion in visitor spending, $14.6 billion in labor income with 323,000 jobs, and $24.3 billion in value added for a total of $42.5 billion in national economic output in 2021 with an operating budget of $4.1 billion. For every dollar spent, the National Park Service generates $10 in economic benefit. And here in our own neck of the woods, the Blue Ridge Parkway generated $1.3 billion to local economies. I mean, it's just amazing in 2020. Another benefit is carbon sequestration, which with the advent of global warming and climate change is, you know, top of people's minds where it wouldn't have been 100 years ago. And according to the USGS, quote, forests, which occupy about half the land in the east, accounted for more than 80% of the region's estimated carbon sequestered annually, unquote. However, it's not just forests. Mature forests, as well as deep soil native grasslands, healthy wetlands, mangrove swamps, and peat bogs sequester carbon at far greater rates than agricultural land, suburban lawns, and certainly than cities. 
In short, mature native ecosystems mitigate climate change. Another benefit is flood protection. So of course, along the coastline, this is a major issue and I'll get into more of that. But here, right here in the mountains, 38 people died in flooding in Eastern Kentucky in July of this year. During an historic rain event attributed to climate change, but made absolutely devastating by strip mining of adjacent mountains. Coal mining companies have been criticized for, quote, failing to return the land to its natural state after decades of mining caused the loss of the natural ridgelines and vegetation, unquote. And it's a shame, and it's a crime, and it's, you know, yet more of the exploitation that happens in Appalachia because, and especially in communities that of poverty. Um, because people can't defend themselves, and um, it's terrible. Um, erosion control is another benefit. Degraded stream banks are unstable, dangerous, unattractive, and muddy the water, and cost a lot to maintain. An ecologically restored stream bank provides erosion control, bank stabilization, cleaner water, and natural beauty with minimal maintenance. And I have photos in my blog post, and you know this is one where I did a before and after. It's not really a before and after because I didn't have the before of the beautiful restored stream bank uh, that I have the after photo of, but I have another photo of like a really yucky, you know, eroded stream bank. And I realized actually that's a familiar sight. You see it a lot around here. Um, and I don't know how it got that way, but it's definitely not. <laughs> Uh, it, it doesn't have to stay that way and you can fix it. And then it's really pretty. So there's a big catch-all category called storm protection. Now we in Appalachia are protected by distance and topography from coastal storms. Um, but we can learn from the lessons that low-lying communities are discovering about the benefits of restoring coastal ecosystems for buffering against storms. Now, if you live somewhere where mangrove swamps were part of the natural ecosystems, those are like some of the best. I mean, they're amazing. They totally protect your coastline against storm damage, but they're also fish hatcheries and uh, they're just incredible. And they're massive carbon sinkers. They just do an amazing job of storing carbon. So anyway, they're finding that, you know, and even cities like New York are finding that ecosystem restoration costs far less than conventional engineering solutions and delivers many other benefits and works a lot better. It's a lot more effective than those levees that broke during Katrina. You know, it is widely believed, you know, and I think, you know, everyone has come to mostly accept that uh, Katrina wouldn't have been so catastrophically damaging if New Orleans had not drained and developed its wetlands. A final clear benefit, if you're saying like, wait, there's only one more left? Hold on, <laughs> is biomimicry. 
this is a really cool and emerging field. Um, and I liked how the Tree Hugger podcast uh, described it, but there's lots of sources online. You can go look it up. Anyway, they said, quote, Biomimicry looks to nature and natural systems for inspiration, using nature-inspired strategies for improving design. Through adaptation and evolution, nature spends millions of years tinkering its way out of problems, ending up with some mind-boggling innovations. Inefficiency doesn't last long in nature, and human engineers and designers often look there for solutions to modern problems. Unquote. Innovations include advanced materials for wetsuits, Velcro, architectural design, display screens. I've got a photo of this like blue butterfly that um, actually inspired all kinds of things. The blue on the wings is not a pigment. It's got to do with the structure of the little, like the fine layer. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, they're doing things with screens and different things. <laughs> um, there's also innovations in water harvesting and storage, and obviously all the innovations with medicine. And that actually goes back quite a ways. We will not be able to learn from nature's laboratory and its millions of years of innovation if we kill off biodiversity. Our solutions might lie out there in the forest or in the great kelp beds, do we dare destroy it before we've properly begun to learn? Do we dare destroy it ever when we can't possibly know what we will need in some unknown future? Now to correct a few popular misconceptions. Pollination and pollinators feed the world. Three-fourths of the world's flowering plants depend on pollinators, who in turn depend on native flowering plants. Here, I've got a photo of honeybees, that, which are domesticated and they are non-native to North America, from Spikenard Farms, which is right around the corner from where this photo was taken. Um, it's a honeybee sanctuary here in Floyd. Um, they are joining in with our native uh, carpenter bees uh, foraging on wingstem. Uh, this is also called stickweed around here. It's got yellow flowers in the fall. Um, Verbicina alternifolia, and it is favored by many native pollinators. And obviously the pollinators are feeding on the nectar and then they are pollinating the flowers. <laughs> Additionally, pollinator larvae, caterpillars, provide an enormous amount of food for birds and mammals and they represent a critical trophic level responsible for converting the sun's energy into protein. So basically the way that goes is sun is converted by plant into something that a, uh, an animal can eat. And caterpillars are one of the big heavy lifters in that process. And so, you know, they, they're, you know, and, and the the edible caterpillars, they're, most of them are pollinators. So they are both key players and indicators in biodiverse ecosystems. We have never experienced a world without them, so we must rely on our imaginations. But the loss of our pollinators would certainly involve major ecosystem collapse. 
And I got a lot of that from Doug Tallamy. And you can look him up. I've got links. He's got a lot to say. However, the importance of pollinators to human food supplies are not as critical as some advocates warn. I've got some quotes, you know, I've chosen this source called Our World in Data, but I found this other places, just, you know, pieced together in different ways. I just, this was easier for me to quote, you know, in one chunk. Quote, most of our staple crops, cereals such as maize, that's corn, um, wheat and rice, roots and tubers such as cassava, and presumably that's also like potatoes and carrots and, you know, all the other root crops, and legumes such as peas and lentils do not rely on bees and butterflies at all. A lot of our fruits and vegetables, oil crops, coffee, nuts, and avocados are partially dependent. And their statistic uh, is basically 75% of crops, 35% by weight. When you add it all up, we would have less of the fruits that, you know, there would be fewer fruits and vegetables and stuff. The current estimates are that crop production worldwide would be reduced by 5 to 10% without pollinators, which is not as big a deal. I mean, it would, we would feel it, but we could survive. We could totally survive. There are only a few crops that are fully dependent. Brazil nuts, fruits such as kiwi and melons, and cocoa beans. A world without pollinators would mean a world without chocolate. And if you are one of the people for whom that sounds like a serious crisis, (laughs) it's just, you know, an argument in favor of the pollinators for food, for purely selfish reasons. So I only bring this up because I think that anyone who's advocating on behalf of pollinators um, does best to advocate on the basis of, you know, a solid argument and not something that, you know, a naysayer can poke holes in. So, yes, it would affect our food, but we would survive. So in a similar category is oxygen, which, These were both things, food and oxygen were things that I was coming up with and, you know, when I was brainstorming my list. But turns out oxygen doesn't exactly come from the oceans or from the forest. Contrary to popular belief, the ocean's phytoplankton do not create for 50% of the oxygen that we breathe because, yes, they do uh, produce 50% of the world's oxygen production. But that oxygen output is used up by marine life. So everything in the oceans that has to have oxygen to live is, you know, absorbing that and surviving because of the phytoplankton. So, you know, phytoplankton die off due to rising ocean temperatures and uh, ocean acidification is threatening the marine life webs upon which we depend for food and represent 80% of all life on Earth. And this is a serious problem. So this is not to minimize how dire that whole situation is. It's just to say that if we were to wipe out all life on Earth, oxygen would remain in the atmosphere for quite a long time. So, you know, and it's the same with our forests. Like, actually, did you know that um, trees, they might 
um, exhale oxygen during the day when they're photosynthesizing, but they breathe it at night. So it kind of balances out. However, in the broad expanses of time, the ocean has provided a large fraction of the oxygen that we breathe through the burial of organic matter. Now, I don't, I couldn't stick it into my brain like exactly how that works. So I've got a link and you could go look that up. Anyway, in the end, we might be able to raise crops and still have oxygen to breathe without rich, highly functional ecosystems. But do we want to live in a world without wonder and beauty, not to mention all of those unimagined consequences. Thank you. I hope this has given you things to think about and some tools to add to your tool chest as you consider taking up an activist stand on behalf of nature. There's a final quote that I want to share. It's from Rebecca Solnit, author of Hope in the Dark. Activism is not a journey to the corner store. It is a plunge into the unknown. The future is always dark. But that doesn't mean it's always bad. And it's going to end bad because, as we know, great things can change. So I'll see you next time as I keep working on my Appalachian biodiversity posts. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye.